The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinnie Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. The people of Defiance, Iowa, knew Scott Shanahan for having a short temper and being unpredictable. So, when he vanished, leaving behind his pregnant wife and two children, no one thought much of it. But one year after his disappearance, investigators would uncover something much more sinister. This week's Court TV podcast is another episode of our original true crime series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, featuring interviews with former Shelby County Sheriff Gene Cavanaugh, author John Farrick, and forensic psychologist Lindsay Dees. This is Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, a year in defiance. This is the Court TV Podcast. Everybody in Defiance, Iowa, knew Scott Shanahan and Dixie Shanahan from growing up. It was the epitome of an abusive relationship. No one had seen Scott for close to a year. One day we got a search warrant to go in the house. They tried to get into the master bedroom. There's all this clutter that's blocking the main door. Everybody in their small Iowa town knew about the violent abuse that was happening behind closed doors. They could hear him screaming at her. They saw her swollen black eyes and the nasty bruises. They watched as the squad cars pulled up to their house and took him away again and again. They told her to leave him, but she couldn't seem to get away. And people started to fear it was only a matter of time before he went too far. Defiance, Iowa is a very little town. It wouldn't appear on most maps in the United States. It's a town at the time that had about 346 uh, people. Shelby County is a uh, farming community, rural community. There's about uh, 10 towns, small towns in Shelby County. Defiance is a very small community. Everybody knows everybody in Defiance. As far as with Dixie Shanahan, she spent most of her life in defiance. She had a very tough childhood. Her father died when she was very young and her stepfather sexually abused her. And the family was often on the move. She moved to the town when she was 16 years old. That's when she and Scott Shanahan developed a courtship. I think one of the things that it's important to remember about Dixie is that she was still very, very young. One of the highest risk factors is that as children, they come from abusive relationships. So either physically abused, um, sexually abused, they're just at a higher risk to essentially go from one you know, abuser's arms straight into another's abuser's arm because that's kind of, that's what they've known their whole life. They met when she was 16 years old and uh, he was 21 years old. They got married. Now, Scott really didn't do a whole lot. They relied on an inheritance. They had two small children together, and it was during this time period that the relationship really came to a head. 1997 was the first time that Dixie went to the police as far as getting law enforcement, being the Shelby County Sheriff's Office involved. 
in a domestic violence incident uh, that she had uh, been a victim of. Scott was a very manipulative individual, very abusive towards Dixie. During my time as sheriff, we arrested Scott numerous times on abuse charges. Dixie Shanahan suffered a lot of abuse. Some of it was mental abuse where Scott would call her names, he would belittle her. Other times, it was physical abuse. She had a lot of bruises up and down her arms and legs. There were even times that he, he bit her. There was other situations that I recall where he exploded. He actually dragged her down to the basement and uh, tied her up with wire from a, from a coat hanger and even told her that he could leave her down here just to die. It was the epitome of an abusive relationship. He beat her on a regular basis. When she got pregnant, he punched her in the stomach, trying to make her miscarry the baby. Dixie had been ordered by Scott to get an abortion, and Dixie's Catholic, and so she refused. And so he, he beat her. She did leave on a couple of occasions once she went to Texas, but she always came back. She came back because she was afraid of him. She was afraid he would either take or hurt the kids. And uh, he was, she was also afraid that, that Scott would hurt her. I've known Dixie for years. I've known Scott for years. And I knew what was going on. And I thought that we did the best we could to get her out of the situation and to try to protect her. The sheriff's office does a real good job as far as responding any and every time that they're made aware of a domestic violence situation. Unfortunately, even when those arrests happened, Dixie would start to come to his defense. She would write letters begging for mercy, begging for a lighter sentence, uh, but she would always write the letter from the standpoint of, you know, she wants to bring the family back together and that Scott's changing or he has changed. We were able to get her to Texas, away from Scott. Her kids and her went to Texas to be with her sister. I think Scott went back down there after he got out of jail and brought her back. Often women try to pacify them as the husband as well. So when, you know, when a neighbor calls the cops and, you know, turns them into the police department, please come and haul him away, they know at some point he's going to get out and at some point he's going to come back and you know, this could be the time when, you know, he really does do a lot of damage. Most people, they didn't like Scott because the things he did and the way he treated people. I was not surprised that this happened. I always thought sooner or later, with the abuse situation going on, this could happen. And unfortunately, it did. Scott Shanahan's abuse of his wife, Dixie, continued for years. Victims of repeated mental and physical abuse often feel trapped with nowhere to go. And experts know that the greatest violence most often follows when an abused woman tries to leave or stand up for herself. But then things take a turn. Scott leaves Dixie. Everybody in uh, Defiance, Iowa, knew Scott Shanahan and Dixie Shanahan from growing up. And people genuinely felt sorry and sympathetic for her. 
Her relationship with Scott was abusive. And it becomes very clear later that he was was physically abusive. Um, she had black eyes, just emotionally drained and, and abused. Even when she was pregnant, this abuse occurred. There were no boundaries. Uh, if she was pregnant, she was not pregnant, you know, daytime, nighttime, it really didn't matter. The abuse uh, continued. And I think over time, it was well-documented um, that it intensified. There was times that she was just very scared and also felt trapped as far as, you know, where else can she turn, where else can she go? She acted in a way that really speaks of the violence and the frustration of being somebody's slave and being violated every day. After the summer of 2002, people aren't seeing Scott around town. But for a lot of people around Defiance, Iowa, the feeling was good riddance. One day, I can't remember who the person was that came in the sheriff's office, said, uh, you know, we haven't seen Scott around Defiance for quite a while. I went up there to talk to Dixie. She told me that he'd ran away with another woman. It's not really until the following summer, a whole year later, that there's just small things that happen over time that make people around town start to scratch their head and wonder, hey, something doesn't seem right here. I didn't think a whole lot about it at first, but she started selling Scott's possessions. And if you know Scott, he'd have beat the heck out of her. He'd, he'd have made her pay. There was one individual uh, out of Council Bluffs, Iowa, that eventually came up to uh, Defiance, Iowa and bought a 1960s Chevette uh, off of Dixie Shanahan. And it, he was a little bit apprehensive about even making the purchase because he knew that this car, you know, belonged to Dixie's husband. He was assured by Dixie Shanahan, there's nothing to worry about, that Scott Shanahan isn't coming back. We had the situation replay itself several times over the next several months. A lot of people were starting to wonder about the fact that why is Dixie selling off these, uh, you know, these possessions of Scott? Some people were starting to wonder, you know, this is starting to not make sense. Some people started to look for Scott Shanahan. Uh, because he was not to be seen. When she started selling off Scott's property, she sold a tractor of his and some other equipment. People around town knew how jealous he was of his belongings. In the summer of late July of 2003, the Shelby County Sheriff's Office this is the first time that they receive a formal phone call or an inquiry asking them to follow up on Scott Shanahan. They start to do a background check in, into Scott Shanahan, and they're unable to find any records as far as employment records, that he's working a job anywhere in Iowa. And the sheriff's office was pretty much coming to the conclusion that Scott Shanahan fell off the face of the earth about this time a year ago. We were very suspicious. So, you know, that led to an investigation. We did some checking, no signs of Scott. 50 state check for driver's license. Okay, maybe he did go to another state. 
nothing. I contacted the DCI, which is a criminal investigation unit for the Iowa State Patrol. We talked about it. We went up there and talked to Dixie a couple times. Of course, she never would let me in the house. One day we got a search warrant to go in the house. When the police go into the house, they try to get into the master bedroom. There's all this clutter that's blocking the main door. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. Nearly a year has gone by with no sign of Scott Shanahan. For many folks in town, including his wife Dixie, that seems like a good thing. She even starts dating someone new. But someone started asking, and that's when the sheriff starts looking a little closer. Where is Scott Shanahan? In the third week of October of 2003, the Shelby County Sheriff's Office decides that they feel that they have enough probable cause to go to the Shanahan house armed with a search warrant. Nobody knew for sure if they were gonna find anything. Although in one of the brainstorming sessions, they did talk a lot about where Scott Shanahan could be. Maybe he's buried in the backyard. No one had seen Scott around for close to a year. That's unlike him, because he was a homebody. He stayed around defiance. Went to the judge, got a search warrant for the house. We went in the house. There was a bedroom that was doors closed. There was towels underneath the door. There was candles lit by the, by the door. And she had told her boyfriend at the time and the kids, do not go in this room. Now, if it was me, you told me not to go in the room, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go in the room. When the police go into the house with the search warrant, they try to get into the master bedroom. There's all this clutter that's blocking the main door. And this clutter included some large cardboard television boxes. When the, the police officers got this door open from the hallway, they immediately were overcome by the smell of foul odor, so that there was a dead body in the master bedroom. As they panned and looked uh, into the room, they saw what they described as being a lump in the middle of the bed. Terrible smell. He walked in and found him in bed, just where he was. And he had been there for a year. The police had to ultimately go up to the bed and peel the covers back. And that's when they were aghast at, you know, the smell was bad enough but then the site that they came across. And as they looked closer and closer to the body, there were signs of lots, of, lots and lots of you know, dead maggots and, and other types of insects that had devoured parts of the body, including the flesh. And it was clear to the police and ultimately through the Iowa Medical Examiner's Office that Scott Shanahan had died from a gunshot wound. Dixie thought she saw him move toward it, so she grabbed the shotgun and uh, fired a slug into the back of his head. 
I think when she closed that door and locked that door and then put the chest of drawers behind the other door into the, from the bathroom to the bedroom, she locked that part of her life out. Well, having the body in the room for a year, I think is all part and parcel of her mental state at the time. I'm not a psychiatrist, but uh, research that I've done over the years indicates that, uh, that women who suffer abuse, you know, they call it the, the battered uh, women's syndrome, have a tendency to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome, which can lead to delusions. I don't know if I could identify an exact point where somebody would snap um, or would kind of go from being abused to um, finally standing up for themselves. If throughout the day she had been being told that she was going to be killed or that she was going to be harmed, if she went in there, if he moved or did something that she perceived as him waking up or being a threat and just kind of decided at that point that she needed to protect herself. Before we got into the house with the search warrant, Dixie wanted to go to a neighbor out on the highway from Defiance and asked me if I would take her out there. Of course, I said, yes, I would. So when I dropped her off at this neighbor's house, she looked me in the eye He said, Gene, this is where I'll be, because she knew we were going to find him once we went in the house. Well, after we found him, we went back out and arrested her. I think that, you know, the town certainly had an idea that it was coming. I think that there were many reports of either it was going to be her or it was going to be him. And I think the town was pretty supportive of Dixie and the fact that she was arrested and was in jail. The town kind of came together and raised, you know, a whole bunch of money to get her free. Well, when you get beat and locked up in the basement and tied up and and he tried to abort her baby and stuff, it, you know, you can only handle so much before you snap. At this point in time, um, after Scott died, she gave birth to their third child. So Dixie has three young, small children at the time that she's now arrested. For a lot of people around Defiance, Iowa, the feeling was this guy got what he deserved. You know, end of story. You know, why should Dixie Shanahan be put in handcuffs? The prosecutor's job is to do justice, and you try to keep the emotions out of it. And you really have to remain objective. Of course, there's time for sympathy, but you can't prosecute a case based on uh, who is the more sympathetic figure. If, if criminal cases were handed, handled that way, it would be but nonsensical. That's just not the way the legal system sees that it should be handled. You have to look at all the facts and all the circumstances. When I filed the case uh, as a first-degree murder case, I felt that that was the charge warranted based simply on the facts as uh, were presented in the investigation. Dixie Shanahan is arrested for killing her husband, but after years of violent abuse, many in the public feel he got what he deserved. Even the judge questions whether this case should go before a jury. Before the case came to trial, we had a pretrial conference in Council Bluffs. I felt it was a first-degree murder case. That's what I'd filed. The defense never had asked us to consider anything less. The judge asked, what plea negotiations had we had? I said, I said none. So at that point, the defense lawyer uh, 
uh, voiced the, his belief that she would plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. Manslaughter would have carried a maximum 10-year prison sentence, but in all likelihood, Dixie would have only had to serve about two to two and a half years of, of prison time. Greg Stensland, Dixie Shanahan's lawyer, ultimately gets back to Thelman and says, you know, the plea bargain fell through. Dixie wants to go to trial. All right, court is now in session. Please be seated. We'll begin with Mr. Tolman, and he will address you first. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is the formal charge that has been laid in this case, and it reads as follows. In the Iowa District Court for Shelby County, State of Iowa plaintiff versus Dixie L. Shanahan defendant accuses Dixie L. Shanahan of the crime of murder in the first degree. It was said Dixie Shanahan on or about the month of August 19, or 2002, in Shelby County, Iowa, did willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation and malice of forethought, kill Scott Shanahan. To this charge, the defendant has entered a plea of not guilty. The case was pretty open and shut as far as Charles Thoman, the assistant attorney general, was concerned. This was cold-blooded murder. It happened in the middle of the night, perhaps, while Scott Shanahan was sleeping. Their marriage was a troubled marriage. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we, he was probably a person most of us would say was hard to like. He was just not a popular guy. He was not particularly friendly. Uh, you just admit that to the jury and because that's the reality of the situation. And then you just present the facts and see where the, where the jury takes it from there. People actually questioned her or the issue of where Scott was came up and the defendant told stories about where Scott was. She said uh, to one person, well, he had a girlfriend that he'd run off with. Another person, well, he's uh, living with a, a dope dealer down in Atlantic, Iowa. One day he had jumped out the back window, took off, and I never saw him again. Don't know where he's at. I'm going to argue that and, and tell you that she did not act in self-defense, that she is guilty of murder in the first degree, and I'll ask you to return that verdict. From the perspective of Dixie Shanahan's lawyers, Greg Stenslin and Chuck Fagan, uh, her defense was all about this was a justifiable homicide, that Dixie was being attacked, she'd been beaten that day, and that she made a quick snap decision to grab the shotgun and shoot him in self-defense. You were told that this is a case about choices. And to a certain extent, I would agree. This is a case about choices, but it's a case about what happens to those choices. It's a case about abuse. It's a case about control. It's a case about justification. And it's a case about how Scott Shanahan took away from Dixie every other choice that she had and left her with the only choice, and that was to kill him. The law says that's justified. It's not pretty, it's not nice, it's not what we want, but it's justified. At the end of the case, I'll be asking you to return a verdict of not guilty. Thank you. There was so much overwhelming support and sympathy, you know, on her behalf that it just really seemed hard to fathom the idea that the prosecution's gonna take this trial, you know, and, you know, they're going full throttle for a first degree murder conviction on this case. Um, as I sat through the trial, my attitude shifted. You can call your first witness. What is that object? Behind the uh, box, the folded up box on the, uh, in front of the door, there was a rolled up towel, first of all, and we can see the edge of a rolled up towel at the base of the box here. 
what we did at this point then was to remove the towel uh, from the doorway and attempt to enter uh, that master bedroom. First thing that uh, we noted when we uh, opened the doorway was uh, a bad odor in the room. After making the photographs without disturbing the sheets as we've just seen, what was your next step then? I just looked uh, slightly under that uh, white uh, blanket you see on the, the top side of the bed there and did notice uh, a body under there. The police had to ultimately go up to the bed and peel the covers back. And that's when they were aghast at, you know, the smell was bad enough, but then the sight that they came across, uh, I mean, just unnerved them. And it was something that stuck with them, you know, for the rest of their careers, without a doubt. Some of these photographs are, are fairly, uh, fairly hard to look at, is that a...? Uh, some of these are quite graphic. That's the word I was looking for. What this initial photograph shows is we have taken, there was a white blanket that was folded about in a fourth of what it normally would be, and that was covering the head area of the uh, individual, the deceased here. At this point in time, upon close examination, we noted a hole in the back side of the head. Thelman just kept going over and over the fact that this was a head wound to the back of the head. And he kept stressing upon the jury, this was a man that was shot in his sleep. And uh, Your Honor, at this time, the state of Iowa rests. I thought we'd put on the best case we could have. I thought our case got stronger uh, with when the defense began to present its case, and particularly when the defendant testified. And I think she made some admissions that were, were damning. The defense will begin today. Mr. Stenson, you can call your first witness. Thank you, Your Honor. We would call Dixie Shanahan. What did he do? Um, pulled him by the hair and started beating me in the stomach. He was hollering, I'm going to kill this baby one way or another. I'm going to kill it. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. After hearing from the state's witnesses, there's no doubt that Dixie Shanahan killed her husband, Scott, by shooting him in the back of the head. Now the defense calls Dixie herself to explain what happened. Can she convince the jury that what she did was justified? At her trial, Dixie Shanahan testified in her own defense, and she didn't waver about the fact that she was responsible for Scott Shanahan's death. It's important to know that, you know, women who are battered, they've learned that they cannot flee and they cannot fight um, because bad things happen. And so they essentially learn that they, they freeze and they've learned to kind of, kind of detach, right? So they just tend to dissociate from the situation that they're in. In late August, was there a discovery that was made by you? For this? Yes, there was. What was that? That I was pregnant again. How did he react to that? He went ballistic. What did he tell you to do? Have an abortion. What did you tell him? No way. Can you describe the first couple of days to the jury? He just kept beating on me and telling me that there was no way I was going to have this baby, that he would make sure that I was not going to have this baby, and that there was nothing that I could do about it. 
I think there's a big inconsistency between what we would consider an immediate threat and what she considers an immediate threat, right? It's really hard kind of for us who have not been in that situation to really get that. What we know about that, Scott had planned to or had told her that that the day was not over. He was, he was still gonna shoot her. He was going to kill her. Uh, so the threat to her was still very real, still very imminent. You remember August 30th, 2002? Yes, I do. I got Zachary dressed that morning and I told him, you better go wake up your dad. Then what happened? Uh, about 10 minutes later, he came out of the bedroom. And Scott came out, Scott of, came out of the bedroom and um, flew into rage because I didn't make sure he was awake when Zachary got on the school bus. What did he do? Um, pulled me by the hair and started beating me in the stomach. He was hollering, I'm gonna kill this baby one way or another, I'm gonna kill it. What happened at the time of the incident in question, Scott had been beating her that day and punching her in the stomach and he threatened her with a shotgun. And later on, they were in the bedroom and Scott was laying down. He may have been asleep, we don't know. But the shotgun was next to him and Dixie testified that she thought she saw him move toward it, so she grabbed the shotgun and uh, fired a slug into the back of his head. I think that this was definitely a tragedy. It was tragic in many ways. It's tragic for a woman who had been abused for her entire life to be left in a situation where she felt that her only way out was to kill him in order to protect herself and her children, her unborn child. That itself is a tragedy. She felt that Scott was an imminent threat to her. Um, whether he was sitting on the couch, whether he was asleep, this had been, this wasn't something that had just happened once. This was a pattern of abuse that had been going on for years and years and years. So she knew by, you know, a look in his eye. She knew by a certain word. She knew by a certain action. She knew what was coming or what, you know, at, at some point what was gonna happen, whether it was another beating. And I could guess that at some point she, in her head, she's like, is this gonna be the day when he actually kills me? Anything else, Mr. Simpson? Not this time, thank you. <laughs> All right. Mr. Tillman, you may cross-examine the witness. <clears throat> thank you, Your Honor. When Dixie was done testifying at her trial, that obviously gave an opportunity for Chuck Thoman uh, the prosecutor for Iowa to ask her probing questions, especially as he had a chance to really try to tear apart and rip apart Dixie Shanahan's testimony on the stand in front of all these jurors. It would have been better if she had not testified, in my opinion. It's the prosecutor's dream is to get a defendant on the stand. He didn't move after you shot him, did he? I didn't, no, didn't, that you, I know of. You didn't move him after you shot shot him, did you? Not that I know of. Left him just as he was when you shot him, right? Yes. All you did was pull up the sheets. Yes. Pull up the sheets to cover the body. Yes, I did. Look at that exhibit, man. That's exhibit 33. That's somebody who's asleep. No, he was not asleep. That's not someone who's reaching for a gun, ma'am. He made a movement. I thought he was coming after me. What movement he did he make? He was not. He, he, it was like he was coming over, rolling over in the bed. He had to be facing you then. He had to be facing you. You're saying the gun was over here? Over here to the right? Yes. 
But when he made a movement for the gun, if you're telling us the truth, he was facing you, not with his back to you. He, all I can say is he made a movement. I thought he was coming for the gun. Thelman didn't raise his voice during the trial. He was very calm, you know, kept his voice down, but just kept harping upon the fact that, ma'am, you know, you shot him while he was sleeping. Dixie denied it, said, no, no, you know, this was an argument, you know, um, I feared for my life. But again, Thelma was just very calm about the whole thing. And if I were on that jury at that point in time, I, it, it kind of made me think that they were probably thinking that way too. I'm not saying where he was at or whatever. I thought he made a movement from that gun and I wasn't gonna let him do it. That's how you shot him. You didn't move him. That's how he was when he was shot, right? Yes. By the end of the trial, I was thinking, yeah, I, I could see a first-degree murder conviction coming back. It, it seems like, yeah, she took the stand and raised her hand and promised to tell the truth, but the version of events that she told, either she convinced herself this is what happened, or she was just outright lying to the, you know, the jury as far as she made up a story. He was not facing you when you shot the shot the no but he did move and i did feel that my life was in danger the man had already pointed a gun at me twice that day i had no reason in my mind to not believe that he would hurt me at was, that point he was sleeping man no he was not no further questions your honor nothing thank you thank you you step down go your next witness Oh, Lori Shiver. The defense called a witness from Iowa State University. This deposition lasted uh, two and a half hours, I would estimate. And I never was able to quite understand the basis for any of her conclusions. Ma'am, your sole academic degree is a Bachelor of Science in Social Work from Iowa State. That's correct. You're not a psychologist? No. You're not uh, a psychiatrist, obviously? No. You haven't uh, interviewed the defendant in this case? That's correct, I have ha not. Haven't met her? No, not to my knowledge. Nothing further, Your Honor. Ms. Shipper, as a, a person in your position, do you start out with a, a basic definition of domestic violence? Yes, there is a fairly agreed upon definition. And what is that? Um, domestic violence is a pattern of abusive behavior, including physical, sexual, psychological um, abuse, and economic coercion used to gain control and compliance over one's intimate partner. Is that different from uh, just other abusive acts? Yes, it is. Um, because it is between intimate um, partners, because it is a pattern of behavior, and its purpose, um, it is purposeful. It is used to lower someone's self-esteem and get control of them, to prohibit them from exiting the relationship. The jury didn't get to hear about battered women's syndrome. It probably would have been more prudent to get a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, uh, you know, and to testify. So the jury never got to hear that. All the jury heard was that he, he beat her up. We have a myth, um, I believe, in our culture that that we all at some point just want her to leave. And if she would just leave, everything would be okay. Um, advocates have the same sort of guttural response to wishing she would leave. I have not examined Dixie Shanahan. I have not spoken with her, um, so I obviously couldn't give an official diagnosis. Um, but I, I can say that a lot of the symptoms that she exhibited would be very consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder and battered women's syndrome. There is no battered women's defense 
per se, but it is um, applicable to a claim of self-defense. And so she needed that to complete her story and, and tell the jury why she did what she did. You have to be able to explain your actions. And with the expert psychological testimony, she could have explained why she did, what her perception was. I think we can all say that Scott Shanahan had it coming. I, I don't know what difference that would make in a court of law, simply because we have rules are, you know, I mean, the court has their rules and they have, you know, hey, if somebody does this, then, you know, this is the sentence for it. Um, I guess that's where people like I come in and try to say, yes, this happened, but this is why it happened. And there are things beyond our control that we, you know, don't always take into consideration. As both the state and the defense rest their cases, the jury must decide what should happen to Dixie Shanahan. The answer may all come down to where their sympathies lie. A lot of people had, uh, had strong feelings one way or the other. There weren't too many people that were stuck in the middle as far as their opinions on this case. I think the state may have been afraid of jury nullification. Jury nullification is where the jury ignores the law in reaching a verdict, even though the state has, has proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury doesn't believe it serves justice, so they acquit. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is the time for the closing arguments. There are plenty of women that deal with this issue. Some have more success than others, but she, she showed that, yeah, there is a way out. Now, if a person acts in self-defense, if a person believes I've just had to kill someone because my life was threatened, they're gonna open themselves up and say, I had to do it. Come in here, investigate this. That's what a person that has really acted with justification is gonna do. Is that what this defendant did? No, she engaged in a pattern of deception an active concealment of her crime. She shot him in the back of the head while he was sleeping. Those are important facts for you to consider, obviously, determining whether she acted with justification. So for these reasons, ladies and gentlemen, the state has proved its case to you that this defendant is guilty of the main crime of murder in the first degree. And I'm going to ask you at the conclusion of this case to find this defendant guilty as charged with a crime of murder in the first degree. As a representative of the state, I'm supposed to uh, do the right thing, do, the, do what's just. I'm not trying to, I'm not supposed to be a salesman and trying to sell them something that isn't there. And so my whole attempt, my whole point is whenever I do a closing argument, is to just try to present it in a reasonable fashion and let the facts speak for themselves and let the jury work through it. This case is about what happened on that day, August 30th, and what Dixie brings to the case. There are traumatic effects that result in a person who's battered in Dixie. Dixie believed, had an honest and sincere belief that he was coming after her, picked up the gun, pointed it, shot. She is conducting herself with the normal response of a terrified person. The only verdict that can be reached when you do true, seek the truth and do justice, in this case, 
is a verdict of not guilty. She was looking at three different levels of guilt, first degree murder, second degree murder, or voluntary manslaughter. So I, when I it went to the jury, I felt that we had made a case for first degree, but I could see with sympathies coming from uh, the jurors themselves that they may return a verdict of a lesser, lesser degree. Has the jury reached a verdict? Yes. Defendant and her counsel and prosecutor, please stand. This is the state of Iowa versus Dixie Lynn Shanahan. The form of verdict used by the jury is form of verdict number two. We find the defendant guilty of murder in the second degree. You can be seated. Mr. Foreman, is this your verdict? Yes, it is. They came back with the verdict of second degree. And uh, to me, what that indicated is uh, they gave Dixie Shanahan some um, some sympathy for the suffering she did endured, but at the same time, they weren't anywhere near acquitting her. They must have, and they did include that, conclude that she um, intentionally killed Scott Shanahan. When the Shelby County jury came back with its verdict, unbeknownst to them, they didn't know what type of sentence range that Dixie Shanahan would, would face. But by coming back with a second degree murder conviction for her, it meant at that point in time in Iowa that she would serve a mandatory 50 year, 5-0, 50 year prison sentence. Judge Smith then took the time to explain as much as he would like to take all the horrible things that Dixie Shanahan experienced and endured that led up to that shooting and the, and the death of Scott Shanahan, he couldn't do anything about that. He was forced to sentence her to 50 years in prison, and she was sent to the Iowa Women's Prison in Mitchellville. Even though Dixie Shanahan was sentenced to 50 years in prison, um, there was a movement afoot almost from the day that she was sentenced to try to either overturn her sentence or change the terms of her sentence. Former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack intervened, and he lowered the time frame that she needed to serve as far as when she would be eligible for parole. And in 2018, um, that is when, so with, that would have been 14 years after she was ultimately convicted of second degree murder at trial, the Department of Corrections paroled her, and she was finally allowed to go home. I think that it is possible for her to be okay. Um, I think that it will take a lot of treatment, a lot of therapy, um, particularly with any of that PTSD, um, any of that battered women's syndrome. I think it's gonna be important for her to really kind of focus on, you know, self-esteem, you know, her self-worth, realizing that she, you know, doesn't deserve to be beaten, she doesn't deserve to be abused, um, and that she is worthy. I can only hope that Dixie was able to get some mental health while she was in prison. When she got out, she came to see me. She says, no hard feelings. And we hugged. I appreciated it. I appreciated it. Uh, it, it was a tough case because it's a tragedy in both respects, for Dixie, for Scott, and for the kids. 
a tragedy. Having served her time in prison, Dixie Shanahan has returned to her rural Iowa home. She declined to be interviewed for this program. For many others who are still suffering from abuse, we urge you to contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's completely confidential, and they can help you find a way to safety. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another episode of the Court TV original production, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. If you'd like to see the full trial of Iowa versus Dixie Shanahan, you can watch it on demand on our website. Just check the show notes for the link. And keep up with the biggest current legal stories from across the nation. Be sure to tune in to my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you for downloading. And as always, please don't forget, to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.